Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to purposely be about 25 to 30 minutes today so that we can have enough time to focus and be intent on uh, the Lord's table as well. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 and another section about the end times. Uh, last week, we had the opportunity to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, about the rapture of the church, uh, where the text says that we, uh, both dead and living people in Christ, will be called up to heaven to meet the Lord in the air, and that we'll be forever with him. And uh, that was a great emphasis, great theme for us to focus on. Hopefully throughout the week you took some time to, to meditate on that as well. And then uh, also in the evening we just did an overview of the end times. Uh, perhaps you've had some questions about how it all fits together. I can't say that all of those questions would be answered by, by listening or watching <clears throat> last Sunday night's service, but it can at least give you a few hooks to hang information on. <clears throat> we looked at five important end time events in order, and uh, I hope that that would be a blessing to you. If you were not here last Sunday night, you might want to check that out. Well, as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, uh, we have learned that God's call to the Thessalonian believers uh, involved much more than simply salvation, coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and even early Christian growth or discipleship. That's found in chapters 1 and 2, even into chapter 3. But then chapter 4, Paul transitions, and he moves from focusing on the past and all the blessings that God has provided to and in the Thessalonian uh, believers' lives to the future, his desire for the future with the Thessalonians. So as you look at chapter 4 and 5, uh, I've categorized God's call as involving some major uh, contributions, some major uh, requirements for us. Like at the beginning of chapter 4, we learned that we must be holy or be sanctified. So not only does God call us to salvation, he calls us to sanctification. And especially there, we learned how we should treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Then in uh, verses 9 through 11, he uses a marker to tell us he's moving on to a new topic. He says, now concerning, in verse 9, and he talks about brotherly love. And uh, within those verses, he said that we all have an obligation to work with our own hands to live quietly with one another so that we can demonstrate the right kind of brotherly love toward each other. Then last week, we saw that Christian behavior includes as well hope in the anytime rapture of the church. That leads us to chapter 5, and the call here will be to diligence, a call to diligence, uh, verses 1 through 11. I think that Paul changes the subject or topic uh, a bit here, or slightly, with the first words. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning, so he's going to change the subject again. He's no longer speaking about the coming of the Lord that he addressed in the end of chapter 4. He's now talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul considered how dead and living believers relate to the coming of Christ. And he tells us that they will be snatched away, taken in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul considers how believers and unbelievers relate to the day of the Lord. Not the coming of the Lord, but the day of the Lord. This is not the snatching away of the church, but the day of the Lord is primarily 
a means of judgment. I, I think that what is going on here is that the Thessalonian believers were struggling with two different kinds of questions. Chapter 4, I think we can get a question like this. They were wondering, what happens when believers die? Where do they go? And what does that mean for their future? Uh, by the time you get to chapter 5, I think they're asking a question like this. When will be the end? And this is not a new question to the Thessalonian believers, and it didn't stop with them either. Believers have asked this question over and over again. When will be the end of time? And so as we look at these uh, verses today, uh, I think that we will see Paul's answer. And Paul's answer stops short of giving them the exact date. Uh, instead, he encourages them to remain diligent, even though they don't know the exact timing of the end of time. I think the main value of our text today will be uh, we will learn from the Apostle Paul and from God, God as well to uh, learn how to respond to rumors and to the reality of end time events. Throughout the history of the church, there have been all kinds of different voices speaking about the end times and uh, the life of New Testament believers during those times. Um, a man in our region, for instance, uh, a preacher, uh, predicted the date and time of the second coming of Christ and events connected to the end of the world. This is not only things that preachers do. I think that uh, lay people do this as well. That is, they go beyond Scripture and they make bold predictions about the end of time. This man in our region predicted that Armageddon would occur in 1982. I think he was wrong on that one. And uh, since then, he has suggested that some significant end-time tragedy would occur in year 2007. So the preacher warned people to prepare for it, to brace for it. He spoke, spoke with boldness and confidence about his interpretation of Scripture and the fact that God himself had revealed this to him in a dream. So what do we do with voices like that or so confident and have certain things to say about the end times? There are other preachers who believe that Christ will come back after the time of great tribulation. And so we, the church, will experience the terrors of the tribulation period. As a matter of fact, uh, our, someone our family knows very well changed his views on the rapture of the church uh, near the end of his life. And so he, he put it after the tribulation period. And so what that meant for this preacher is that he dug a trench from his basement to his garage and built a bunker out of wood planks and wooden rods so it would not be able to be detected by government leaders. He hid the entrances to this. I got a tour of it one day. He hid the entrances to this in his basement behind a refrigerator. He carved out the wall behind the refrigerator so it would just sink right in there. And then he hid the other entrance behind an air compressor in his garage. His strongly held opinion and his warning that day to me is that we should physically prepare for end time judgments of the magnitude of those found in the book of Revelation. Well, how should we respond to that voice? Others today say we shouldn't really talk much about the end or the second coming because it's not clear in the Bible. 
So because it's unclear, we shouldn't really study these texts of Scripture, or we should avoid drawing exegetical or theological conclusions to it. This, this week, I read, for instance, uh, a man in the book of Revelation commenting and saying that when it talks about a third of the water being turned into blood and a third of the world's population dying under end-time judgments, that these are only metaphorical for some kind of local or regional situation. So his point is, it doesn't really mean that a third of the rivers or lakes or people will be extinguished. How should we respond to that voice? I'll just give you a few examples. I could go on and on. There are a lot of so-called experts when it comes to prophecy and end times, and we need to be very careful in who we listen to. And so the value of this text is in this passage, we will hear Paul's voice about how the church should respond to the impending day of the Lord. And when we hear Paul's voice, we ultimately hear God's voice. Okay, so if you pay attention these 25 minutes or so, and we walk through this text, you will get at least two or three admonitions from Paul on how to respond. And so I, I just want to work through this uh, very briefly with you first. I think the way Paul tells us a believer's proper response to end-time events is by revealing how two groups of people relate to the day of the Lord. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see unbelievers and the day of the Lord, verses 1 through 3. So look at verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone, anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. In these verses, Paul considers the topic of, and he marks it there, the times and the seasons. Flip over in your Bible to Acts chapter 1 for a moment. We won't be there for long, but I want to see Acts chapter 1. And verses 6 and 7, okay? This phrase, times and seasons, I believe is a stock term or fixed phrase refer, that refers to the timing of eschatological events. In Acts 1 verse 6, Jesus is being ascended up to heaven. And as he does this, the disciples ask him, that, that are gathered around him at his ascension, they ask him a very specific question. Look at verse 6. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking a specific question about the timing of the millennial kingdom or the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus' answer, verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know, and uh, this is the exact same phrase, the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so uh, this phrase, when you hear this phrase or see this phrase, times and seasons, I think it's, it's indicating that they're discussing questions related to the timing of end time events. Interestingly, the disciples of Christ asked Jesus the same sort of questions that the Thessalonians might have asked Paul, and their answers are similar. Paul's answer is not to 
enable his audience by fixing a date on their calendar of when the day of the Lord would be there. Jesus did the same. He says, it's up to the Father, said according to his authority. But both Christ and Paul capitalize on the zeal of those asking the questions, and they redirect the focus of the people. So Jesus says, instead of worrying about the timing of the kingdom and when that will become, go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See what Jesus does? He refocuses. You want to know about the timing? I'll just tell you, be witnesses. Paul doesn't answer the question about timing either. I think the Thessalonians were wondering, when is this going to be? When's the end of time? When's the day of the Lord? And Paul says, instead, be alert and be prepared in your mind for the day of the Lord. And that leads us to a question that I want to consider with you. And this, uh, what I'm going to give you here, I'm just going to go through very quickly. This actually is a sermon in and of itself. Okay, like you could take a whole sermon to talk about the day of the Lord. You could take multiple sermons to do this. And so I've given you this in your handout. I want you to, to study it this week on your own. I want to make five statements about the day of the Lord from the Old and the New Testament because this is a concept that just runs from the Old Testament the whole way through your Bible. And you'll need to look in your Bible and see if you believe what I'm saying to be true concerning the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The first statement I want to make about this concept is the day of the Lord is mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. It is used 19 different times, the phrase, day of the Lord in the Old Testament, in eight different books of the Old Testament. It's used in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Malachi. It's all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is the day of Yahweh, or the day of God himself. And so this is a day primarily of judgment in the Old Testament scriptures. So it's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, but it's a New Testament concept as well. The day of the Lord is used in the New Testament frequently. It's in seven different New Testament passages. This phrase is used in Acts and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. One of the interesting things I'll point out to you is that in the New Testament text that I studied, and I remember the first time I studied the day of the Lord, it took me like a month to work through all of these texts. Well, in working through the New Testament text, one of the things I observed is that the day of the Lord, that the Lord in the New Testament always refers to Jesus instead of Yahweh. So it's an intentional switch, which I think is a powerful tribute to the deity of Jesus Christ. For each New Testament writer who uses the term then, the day of Yahweh, God, Israel's God, is the day of Jesus. Okay, so this is uh, a concept that refers to the New Testament to a day when Jesus will come in judgment. The third statement I'll make about the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to describe severe judgments on the nations. It's primarily judgment upon the nations. And I just want you to get a feel for that in a few texts. To save some time, I'm just going to read you some texts on the PowerPoint here that describe in the Old and New Testament that this is a time of severe judgment. So when you see the phrase, day of the Lord, you shouldn't be thinking like, 
overwhelmingly positive things or deliverance. So that can be a little part of it, but primarily it's judgment. It's wrath coming down upon this world. Look at Isaiah 13, verse 9. It says, Behold, the, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land, uh, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Okay, this is not, you know, an, an encouraging moment for the world's civilization when this moment comes true. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. So when you think day of the Lord, some of these texts, it's primarily a day of judgment. Use the New Testament text too, just one. Second Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I took the two minutes to read through these sections because I want you to think, when you think day of the Lord, that you think it's a time of severe judgment upon people or upon this world. So these three statements kind of summarize day of the Lord. And we got to do a little bit of this so that we can uh, make sense of the text that Paul has here. The fourth statement I'll make about the day of the Lord is that the day of the Lord sometimes describes times of judgment that occurred during a specific Old Testament era or king or kingdom. But many times it speaks of a fuller, greater end time judgment that will come upon the nations. Okay, in other words, when you see day of the Lord in some of those Old Testament texts, it will just be this like momentary uh, blast of God's judgment on a particular group of people during that time in history, but most of the time it's a, this future day of judgment when God is going to come and to do some devastating things to this world. And then the final statement I'll make about the day of the Lord, and I just would encourage you to compare these to those texts I gave you earlier in your notes. Uh, the fifth statement I'll make about this day is, while the word day can, can be used to refer to one event or one period of 24 hours, it can also refer to a period of time or an era. And I know that we need to be uh, careful in how we do this, but after studying 1 Thessalonians 5, I find myself in agreement with one theologian by the name of John Walver, an old writer. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord is used in the sense of an exhausted period of time, an era of time. So when we come in this text and to other texts in the New Testament, I think when I want to hear day of the Lord, I think that the author is including parts of the tribulation period that will 
bring a, a great deal of judgment, but it's more than that. It's also parts of the end of the millennial kingdom where there's a great battle and devastation. And I think that the day of the Lord can also be used to refer to the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire. Okay, so we, we just went through all that, and it was hard to follow all of that, but the day of the Lord is a time, an era of significant devastation. I think it starts in the tribulation, there's parts of it in the millennial kingdom, and then the eternal wrath of God also could be used uh, to describe the day of the Lord. Okay, now let's get back in this text. Let's look at verse 2. How does Paul describe it here, this time of significant judgment? Well, he does it in two ways. Uh, he says, first, it is unexpected. But his object in verse 2, look at, your, look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware, you know about it, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and knife. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. In my opinion, verses 1 through 3, what Paul's doing is he's saying this great day of significant judgment will come upon unbelievers and it will be completely unexpected. They won't see it coming. You say, well, where do you see that in this passage? I say there are three kind of metaphors that he uses to picture this. He says it's like a thief coming in the night. Okay, we won't take a lot of time to look at that, but I think that that analogy was more powerful probably than it is in the first century, or than it is in our world today. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I thought about a thief coming in to break into my house or into my car. As a matter of fact, I'm a bit of a country boy, and so I've, I've actually got some problems. Uh, I used to, my wife broke me in this, but I used to leave my keys in the car in the ignition when I left because I just never thought about a thief stealing anything. I lived in the middle of nowhere. It was just more convenient to leave them there. I wouldn't lose them. <clears throat> I have relatives who never lock their house. I'm not going to tell you who they are so you don't go and steal their stuff. Uh, they, they never lock their house. Uh, even when they go away on vacation, the thought of a thief coming, it means nothing to them. Now that I've moved to the suburbs, a little bit more, right? But in the first century, this was a powerful metaphor, a thief coming in the night. It's a vivid illustration of the need for vigilance. So the day of the Lord will be sudden and unexpected. It will be like a thief coming in the night to the people of this world, not believers, we're fully aware of the day of the Lord, but for unbelievers, it will come like a thief in the night. It will come, secondly, when people say peace and security. Again, I can just go quickly through this. I think that that phrase is a common Roman phrase during this era. If you were a part of the Roman Empire, this is part of their lingo. They promised peace and security. This is found on their coins and inscriptions and letters and statutes, peace and security. If you would be a city in the, under Roman authority. As a matter of fact, about 100 years before the apostle Paul came to Thessalonica, there was a world traveler by the name of Cicero who complained about how dangerous Thessalonica was. He was traveling through the city and he talked about the bandits who would be on the sides of the road who would attack you as you leave the street. 
But then things got much better for this city when it came under Roman authority because Rome promised uh, peace and security to those people who had come under its authority. So I think this is a common phrase that Romans and Thessalonica were saying, peace and security, peace and security. And Paul plays off of that. He says, that's a false security. Jesus is going to come back when people are saying peace and security. They're going to feel all prepared. But then the Lord will come back and they will face the wrath of God. Third way he describes this is going to be sudden is it will come as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And we won't get into that. I'm not an expert, can't speak to that very much. But I think this is not only a picture of the suddenness of God's wrath on humanity. It also describes the painful nature of God's wrath when it comes. It will come when you least expect it. It's sudden for unbelievers. And then I see the little part of the the end of verse 3, and I say not only is it sudden, it is inescapable. And they will not escape. Unbelievers will not escape this great day of God's wrath. God's wrath will come down on them like a tidal wave, and they will be unable to run away from it. I think a proper perspective on the day of the Lord then for us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, who are believers in Jesus Christ, who know we won't be a part of that, would would have a deep burden for the lost. They will not escape. It will come suddenly down upon them, and they will not be able to get out from it. But that leads to uh, this second point I want to make with you, verses 4 through 11, and we can go... Uh, quickly through these verses as well. Believers and the day of the Lord. I think it's obvious if you look down in your Bible that Paul transitions to believers. Look at verse 3 and look at the pronouns. It says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Labor pains will come upon them as a pregnant woman and they. Okay, so third person plural. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's talking about other people. It's going to come upon them and they will not escape. But then look at verse 4. But you. He's switching. I was talking about unbelievers. Now I'm talking about you, believers. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. And then he he changes it to we. He, He becomes... You know, he enjoys solidarity with him. I'm with you. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others uh, do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So here Paul specifically explains that believers relate to this day of the Lord, I think, in two primary ways. And again, I'll go through this quickly for sake of time and just point out the big pieces, and you can study it on your own a little bit this week as well. First, I think he says in verses 4 through 10, if I were to boil that down to one point, I think Paul's statement is, believers will not be seized by the day of the Lord. Verses 4 and 5, he he tells us what we are. He gives our status. We are people who behave ourselves appropriately. We should. We're like people in the middle of the day, not like people who try to get away with sin during the middle of the night. 
And as light-dwelling believers, Paul reasons with the Thessalonians then that we are not surprised by the day of the Lord. That's how the ESV translates this concept here. Not surprised by, but I think that's a weak translation. I prefer something a little bit stronger for this word. Something like overtaken or overtake or seize. This day will not overtake you or seize you. you say, well, why would you take it so strongly? Well, in the Gospel of John, in John 12, 35, it talks about uh, walking in light while we can before darkness comes and overtakes us. But probably even more powerful, in, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus uh, is uh, talking there with a man whose son has been overtaken by a demon, and the man says that the demon seizes him and throws him down. That's the same word. He seizes my boy and he throws him down. So I think what is going on here, what Paul's saying is that this day of God's great judgment, this judgment from Jesus, will not seize or overtake believers. Okay? And so that's just meant as a word of encouragement and comfort to them. Perhaps some of the Thessalonian believers thought that the day of the Lord, this day of significant wrath and judgment had already begun and that they were experiencing it. And Paul just settles them. He says, you need to know that this day of the Lord is not an intention for believers in Jesus Christ. It will not seize you like it does them and they. And so then Paul gives a twofold challenge here, I think, in verses 6 and 10. And, and this is uh, Paul's voice. You know, remember we talked about all the preachers and what they say about end time events? This is what Paul would say. Here's how you should respond. First, you should re remain aware of God's future judgment. I, I see that in verse 6. So then, and here's a command, let us not sleep. Okay, don't sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Okay, that's stated negatively and positively. Don't sleep, but be watchful. This is an important way that, that New Testament writers often end their letters. Paul the Apostle uses this phrase, be awake or stay awake often at the end of letters. Colossians and 1 Corinthians and here in 1 Thessalonians. I find it interesting that Peter uses these phrases a lot too. Watch, be, watch, stay awake, be watchful. It meant a lot to Simon Peter you could read about in 1 Peter. I think one of the reasons is because he wasn't at the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't stay awake, and he wasn't watchful. Okay, so silencing all the other voices, all the other preachers who would tell you what to do, all the other believers who would tell you what to do, Paul the Apostle says respond this way. Stay awake. Be watchful. For this impending day of future judgment is on the horizon. It's coming. So be watchful. And then secondly, he says we should exercise self-control. And I see this in verse 6 as well. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. It's that phrase, be sober. A little bit later on in verse 8, he repeats this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Two times here, Paul tells us to have a sound mindset. This word sober, uh, when we hear it in English, sometimes I think 
we think don't be drunken. And this Greek root had a similar uh, beginning, but it, it became much more than that so that it uh, meant to have a sharp or a controlled mind like you do when you are sober, for instance, but have a sharp or controlled mind, minds alert and prepared for action. There's a whole lot more we could say here about this passage, but this is the voice of the Apostle Paul. Stay awake, be watchful, and have sharp minds prepared for action because of the impending day of the Lord. And then finally, this teaching in verse 11 should encourage and edify them. Look with me at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Here it should encourage us. I think the particular way this passage on the day of the Lord should encourage us is, I think it should at least do this. It should at least let us know that no matter what suffering or catastrophe we are enduring, that it is not the day of the Lord, or the day of His significant wrath and judgment. Now, we should be settled. We're not going to face that. We're not of the night. We're of the light of the day. So I think that it would encourage us in that way. And then, I think second, it should, with this teaching, we should build up one another. We should exhort one another. That's how I take this edifying here. It should be exhorting one another. And I think, in particular, what I want you to leave with today is it should exhort us about the fate of unbelievers. We should be exhorting each other about that. They will not escape it. I think a clear understanding of the reality of God's future judgment on this world should sharpen us in that it should make us more fervent in our witness to unbelievers. This week, as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, I just started reading again through some of the end-time judgments that are going to come upon the planet. And I began asking the Lord and just having Him just lay the reality of these things upon me. And I'll just review two or three of them with you. A day is coming when hail and fire that is mixed with blood will come down upon this planet and a third of the world's population will be destroyed. You say, well, that's just the voice of this preacher. I could give you the exact verse in Revelation that says that. That's the Word of God. Hell, fire mixed with blood coming down to destroy a third of the population. A time is coming when poisonous locusts will devastate another third of the world's population. And men and women, as you turn to the very end of Revelation, a time is coming, we must believe, where God will raise up from the grave and from Sheol every person who has not believed in the name of Jesus Christ, and they will be judged and they will be thrown into an eternal lake of fire where they will experience 
the wrath of God forever. Do you believe that? And if so, that should exhort us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our families, our neighbors, need to hear the message of Jesus Christ so that they will be delivered from the day of the Lord.